Chapter 25. Young Folk's History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com Young Folk's History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Sullivan's Expedition. Paper Money. It was in this year, 1778, that the troubles with the Indians reached such a state as not only to keep the scattered settlers on the borders in a state of terror, but also to arouse the intense anger and increase the determination of those who dwelt in the more thickly populated regions to the eastward to continue the struggle with England. For at the feet of a few Englishmen was laid the charge of arousing the red men, and encouraging them to join in the quarrel between the colonies and the mother country. In a large measure the charge was true, and the only points that can be raised to shield such men as Lord George Germain, who had urged the employment of the savages, is that perhaps they did not fully understand just how savage and cruel they were. Besides, as the war continued, very naturally the hatred of the Tories for the obstinate Whigs became stronger and stronger and many leaders like Butler, who favored using the Indians in quelling the rebellion, found themselves unable to restrain their allies from their fearful deeds of cruelty after a victory had been won. In addition to these things, there is no doubt that some of the leading red men were, after their own fashion, patriots, and honestly believed that, by aiding the redcoats in conquering the Americans, they would at the same time banish forever from the land the white men who were encroaching upon their own abodes. Just what they could have done if the British had been successful cannot be known, but in all probability there would have followed soon another war between the Red Men and the Red Coats. Brant, or Thayendanegea, was perhaps the foremost Indian of them all, and certainly he believed he was best serving his own people by trying to exterminate the Pale Faces in America. An old-time manuscript asserts that, after the Battle of Brandywine, quote, the plan of operations for the ensuing campaign was laid, and Mr. Brant determined to harass the frontiers of the Mohawk River about Cherry Valley, while Saki and Guaratone took the opportunity of this diversion to cut off the settlements of Wyoming on the Susquehanna River, unquote. This border warfare extended into Kentucky and Tennessee, and also into the valleys of the Middle West, wherever the daring and hardy settlers had gone. But the limits of this work will prevent us from dealing with more than two of these battles, or massacres, as they might more properly be termed, those of Wyoming and Cherry Valley. Wyoming Valley in northeastern Pennsylvania is one of the most beautiful spots in our entire country. Today, the surrounding hills or mountains, the wooded slopes, the fertile fields, combined to present a charming picture, and one can hardly be surprised that the red men and whites contended eagerly for its possession. In 1762 a little band of settlers had entered the valley, but a terrible massacre by Indians in the following year almost drove back the pioneers. The place was too tempting, however, to be given up, and so again in 1769 a second colony from Connecticut made their way into the region where their forerunners had so miserably perished. The colony of Connecticut claimed this region as theirs by the grant of their charter, 
but the settlers of Pennsylvania boldly disputed the claim, and for a time there was almost as much ill-feeling and even bloodshed between the white settlers at Bethlehem and Easton and those of Westmoreland and in the Wyoming Valley as there were between the Indians and the pioneers. The surrounding Indians were unfriendly, and away to the north were the six nations who had led the massacre of 1763. The Seneca chief, Sakian Guaraton, or Kang his name is spelled in a dozen or more different ways, had declared of the whites, they have taken their land from us. The people of the Wyoming settlement were intensely patriotic, and the news of the fight at Lexington and Concord had so stirred them that the few Tories in their midst were practically banished. Tories from the Mohawk Valley, after the defeat of St. Ledger, as well as from other parts of the interior, assembled with the Indian warriors at Niagara, and from that fort an expedition started on its mission of woe for the Valley of the Wyoming. Brant had been a leading spirit in planning the movement, but he himself was not to go with the men, although many historians have represented him as the leading spirit of the massacre. The expedition, consisting of from 900 to 1,200 men, Indians and Tories, was led by the detested Tory Colonel John Butler and the Seneca chief, Sakayen Guaraton, or Old King, as he was commonly known by the white men. In 1774, the settlers of Wyoming, then numbering almost 3,000, had erected five forts near their homes, the strongest of these being known as Forty Fort, a large, rude blockhouse considered remarkably safe and strong. June 30, 1778, was the day when the invading force appeared before Fort Wintermoot, the first of these defenses, and without a struggle it fell into their hands. It was declared at the time that its defenders were really Tories at heart, and that it was purposely yielded, and without an effort to hold it. Fort Jenkins soon afterward was surrendered, but by this time the people of the region had learned of the approaching force under Butler and Old King, and hastily assembled at Forty Fort, where the command of the little band of defenders was given to Colonel Zebulon Butler, an experienced officer in the Continental Army, who was at home on a furlough at the time. This leader strongly advised that no attempt to fight should be made until other companies of men, who were known to be advancing through the valley, should be given an opportunity to join them. He was overruled, however, and in the afternoon of July 3rd, the little band set forth from Forty Fort, having left strict orders as to what was to be done in their absence, and advanced in search of the approaching enemy. They selected what they thought to be a good place, and arranged their little force in a line about 500 yards in length, extending from a marsh to the river. Colonel Zebulon Butler commanding the right wing, and Colonels Dorrance and Dennison the left. They had not long to wait before the enemy appeared, and so bold and eager were the patriots that they made a rush upon the British, who purposely fell back, while Old King led his followers around to the rear of the left wing, and then fell savagely upon the men who were thus hemmed in. An order of Colonel Dennison for some of his followers to fall back was mistaken for the word retreat, and a panic and most horrible massacre followed, a massacre too fearful to be described. The manuscript of Clause, already quoted from, declares that, quote, at the same time, when the attacks on Cherry Valley and Schenectady were made, 
Sakayen Guaratone put his plan into execution, making every preparation, disposition, and maneuver with his Indians himself, and when the rebels of Wyoming came to attack him, desired Colonel Butler to keep his people separate from his, for fear of confusion, and stood the whole brunt of the American action himself, for there were but two white men killed, and then destroyed the whole settlement without hurting or molesting woman or child, which these two chiefs, to their honor, be it said, agreed upon before they went into action in the spring." Unquote. Other reports, however, differed materially from this, and stories of terrible cruelty and suffering followed. One of these was that some of the living surrendered men were placed in a double circle around Bloody Rock, and the Indian Queen Esther with her own bloody hand hacked to pieces the wretched prisoners. At all events, when the invading force withdrew from the valley on July 8th, they had many more scalps than had been secured in battle. And as the British offered ten dollars for each scalp they secured, a goodly sum was received by these obedient subjects of good King George III. The valley itself was a scene of smoking ruins, and the beauty of the region was marred by the desolation that only roused the army to do more. After the massacre, the surviving people fled by the river, by paths across the mountains, through the forests, anywhere, everywhere, to get away from their merciless foes. In one party consisting of a hundred people, it is said that there was only one man. A story is told of one woman, a Mrs. Gould, who with her children was mounted on a horse, but at the sight of the aged or infirm about her she dismounted, gave up her horse, and fled with her little ones clinging to her hands. It is a pleasure to know that at last she escaped. One young man, after the battle, plunged into the river and swam to a small island, where he concealed himself in the bushes near the bank. Twenty of his friends who had not followed his example fell beneath the tomahawk. He himself expected every moment that the searching Indians would discover him. But though one once stepped upon the very bush beneath which he was concealed, he was not found. One brave mother with her six little ones succeeded in at last making her way, after terrible perils and suffering, to the Connecticut land from which he had come. Another, whose five brothers had fallen, escaped with six people in a canoe, and, without a mouthful of food, started down the river. At last, meeting a boat laden with supplies that was making its way upriver to the settlement, their hunger was relieved, and all succeeded in reaching Harrisburg after a most terrible voyage. It was November 10th of the same year when the massacre at Cherry Valley, New York, occurred and many of the attacking party were those who had had a share in the horrible work at Wyoming. Houses, supplies, barns were burned, and fifty men, women, and children were slain. It is claimed by the friends of Brandt that he had tried to hold back the red men from the slaughter of the innocent, but either the report was not true, or even his powers failed. The band of 700 Tories and Indians left of Cherry Valley only smoking ruins and a name. One or two stories will serve to show the character of the assault on the peaceful little settlement. A young lady, Miss Jane Wells, having escaped from her house during the attack, tried to conceal herself in a woodpile. An Indian discovered her, and thrusting his scalping knife into its sheath, seized her by one hand while he brandished his tomahawk in the other. As she could speak the Indian language, she begged him to have mercy upon her. 
and one of the Tories named Peter Smith, who was in the invading party, joined in begging the savage to spare her life, pretending that she was his sister. He had at one time been a servant in the family. But the Indian would not listen, and the poor girl was stretched lifeless by a blow. A man named Mr. Shankland had removed his family from Cherry Valley, when rumors came of the intended attack, but, with his son, had himself returned to look after his possessions. Just before daylight he heard the Indians trying to break into his door with their tomahawks. He had two guns in the house, and telling his son to keep them loaded, he fired them in rapid succession. But it was too dark to enable him to see whether he was inflicting any damage or not, so he determined to make a rush upon his foes, hoping by his very boldness to put them to flight. Seizing a spear, he carefully unbarred the door, and then, with a yell, started forth. The astonished Indians fell back, and one, whom Mr. Shanklin could see fleeing before him, he closely followed. The red man stumbled in his flight over a log, and the furious white man struck at him with his spear. But the spearhead entered the wood, and the shaft parted asunder. Wrenching the blade from the log, the intrepid pioneer started swiftly back to his house the shelter of which he gained before his foes fairly realized what was going on. Meanwhile, his son, during the turmoil, had fled from the house, and his absence had no sooner been discovered by his father than the loud yells of the Indians betrayed the fact that he had been captured. Still the desperate man fought on, single-handed now, the bullets of the Indians frequently coming in through the window casements, and he returned the fire as rapidly as possible. He was fearful of making another sally, lest he should also involve his boy in the death that he believed must surely follow. At last the wearied Indians succeeded in setting fire to the building, and their loud yells of delight, as well as the blaze of the flames, at once betrayed to Mr. Shanklin his peril. But he was not even yet ready to give up. In the rear of the house, and between it and the adjacent forest, was a field of hemp, and the daring man ran from the back door for its shelter. Delighted to find that the darkness had favored him, he crept on through the hemp field, and at last gained the shelter of the forest, and then made good his retreat to the Mohawk, while the delighted Indians, waiting until the house had burned to the ground, at last having no doubt that the brave man had perished in the flames, returned with their prisoner to their fellows with shouts of victory. Of such stern stuff were our heroic forefathers made. The feelings of patriotic Americans had been so aroused by the horrors of these massacres, and by the reports of similar sufferings in the South and West, that Congress, on February 27, 1779, passed a resolution authorizing Washington to take such measures as seemed best to him to punish the Indians and protect the scattered settlers. General Washington, after consulting with Colonel Zebulon Butler and others who had escaped from the Wyoming massacre, resolved to strike and strike hard, and in the only manner which the savage allies of the British would be able to understand. He therefore resolved that an army of 5,000 men, consisting of New Jersey, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania troops, should be sent directly into the country of the Six Nations, and strike such a blow as would teach the offending Redmen a lesson that was certainly very much needed at the time. At first Washington was at a loss to know which of his generals should be placed in command. Hundreds of miles must be traversed, a way must be found through the trackless forest, 
and by day and by night a merciless and almost invisible foe must be guarded against. After a time he concluded to offer the command to Gates, but in response to the letter he sent, he received the following reply from that weak and incompetent man. Quote, Last night I had the honor of your excellency's letter. The man who undertakes the Indian service should enjoy youth and strength, requisites I do not possess. It therefore grieves me that your excellency should offer me the only command to which I am entirely unequal. In obedience to your command, I have forwarded your letter to General Sullivan. Unquote. Slight cause for wonder is it, in his letter to Congress, Washington should have complained as he did of Gates' petty reply. Quote, My letter to him on the occasion I believe you will think was conceived in very candid and polite terms, and it merited a different answer from the one given to it. Unquote. However, hardy General Sullivan was ready to undertake the difficult task, and while part of his little army went up the Mohawk Valley, led by General James Clinton, he himself, with the remaining force, moved up the Susquehanna. In the latter part of August, 1779, the two divisions met, and, joining forces, attacked the Indians and Tories that were assembled at Newton, the site of the present city of Elmira. Brant was there, and so were Sir John Johnson and the two Colonels Butler, whose cruelty has been believed to be even greater than that of their savage allies. In the battle that followed, Sullivan's followers were entirely successful, and after receiving some losses, the enemy broke and fled. Then began the further advance of the army under Sullivan. Indian towns were burned, crops were destroyed, warriors were killed, and all the horrible but apparently necessary experiences of a struggle with savages were endured. Brant was equally active, but he was not able to check the advance of the army, for forty or more of the Indian villages were now destroyed. But the long march, the increasing sickness, and the lack of provisions began to accomplish what the Tories and Indians had failed to do, and at last Sullivan was compelled to turn back without having destroyed Fort Niagara, which had been one of the great objectives of the expedition. The power and spirit of the Indians had received so severe a blow that they never wholly recovered from it, and though their depredations did not entirely cease, and among the terrible forms of revenge used by Brant was the destruction of the Oneida tribe, which, as we know, had been friendly to the Americans during St. Ledger's advance into the Mohawk Valley in 1777, and many a home of a lonely settler was destroyed by the savage redmen. Still never again were the experiences of Wyoming and Cherry Valley to be repeated. It was at this time that the troubles of Washington and the army, as well as of the people, were greatly increased by something that was only indirectly connected with the war. We often hear today the expression, not worth a continental, but not always do we stop and think of what it means. In order to pay the expenses of the army and of the new government, Congress had been issuing paper money. But when a country has more of this than it can pay in gold, or its promises to pay are not believed, it speedily comes to pass that each dollar decreases in value, and two or three or more dollars are made to do the work of one. In 1778, Congress had issued so much of this paper money that eight continental dollars would only purchase as much as would one dollar in gold. The British and Tories in New York now began to counterfeit this money, 
and this was done so easily and so boldly that the farmers and poorer people, upon whom the burden of cheap money always falls most heavily, very soon were not willing to take any of it in return for their produce or labor, and before the war was brought to an end, the continental dollar would hardly purchase anything at all. So arose the expression, not worth a continental, by which the people who used the term meant that the object offered them was utterly worthless. It would seem as if the troubles of Washington were already more than he could bear. Still, like the strong man that he was, he did not complain. Many of his generals were of no great assistance to him. Congress was timid and fearful. Many of the people were discouraged because the war was lasting so long. There were treacherous men, and even traitors, among his so-called friends. But the resolute heart of George Washington did not falter. He now knew that not by open fighting, for which his enemies, in spite of the fact that the Continentals were better disciplined than ever they had been before, were better prepared than he, could he gain the freedom of the nation. He must tire the British out. This was his only hope and now that the French had failed in rendering very much assistance, the character of the war, at least in the northern part of the country, entirely changed. End of chapter 25